Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Season 3 of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, where, as always, you will find evidence-based insights from world-leading experts to inform your practice. We've got a great episode in store for you today, folks. I'll be talking with expert Rob Morton, all about protein supplementation and how it impacts strength and lean mass. There are a lot of myths and misconceptions out there around protein supplementation, and Mr. Robert Morton, PhD candidate in the Protein Metabolism Research Laboratory under the mentorship of Dr. Stuart Phillips at McMaster University, is going to walk us through his research the largest meta-analysis ever conducted on protein supplementation. Rob's passion is understanding how exercise and nutrition mediate skeletal muscle size and why there is individual variability. His research has also been published in leading sports science journals and has been featured in a number of media outlets, including the New York Times, the Globe and Mail, Men's Health, and Sports Illustrated. In this episode, Rob shares his insights on the benefits of added protein supplementation for athletes and recreational trainees, and how much more does it really help. He also talks about how much training impacts your gains versus protein supplementation, and will also clarify regarding protein types. Does it even matter? He'll also talk about the proposed upper threshold for muscle protein synthesis, whether one gram per pound body weight is still a simple and good heuristic, and also talk about the protein requirements in older individuals and how they are different from the general population. Finally, Rob shares his take on the evolution of research in this area, as well as much, much more. So definitely take notes here. Terrific episode here from Rob, whose background in strength and conditioning combined with his academic training gives him a real unique and well-rounded perspective here when appraising all of this research in sports science. As usual, you can find all the links in the podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested in more on the topic of protein, then definitely circle back all the way back to season one, episode seven with Dr. Tyler churchward Venn on protein, hypertrophy, and high performance. Season two, episode seven with Dr. Eric Helms on nutrition for bodybuilders, hypertrophy, and physique-focused athletes. And Season 3, Episode 2 with Australian Dr. Lachlan Mitchell on bodybuilder nutrition, refeed strategies, and muscle dysmorphia. Alright, this episode is sponsored by my new book, Peak, the new science of athletic performance that is revolutionizing sports. It's available now at all bookstores, and of course, proud to announce we just hit number one new release on Amazon.ca and Amazon.com for sports medicine, sports training, holistic medicine, and training and rehab. So thanks to everyone for all the support. This episode is also sponsored by our good friends at Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. Totem Sport is the only sport drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sport drink, tested and approved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. Use the promo code BUBS10. B-U-B-B-S-10 at checkout and save 10% at totemsport.com and defy the norm. All right, let's do this. Season 3, Episode 21. Enjoy. 
Rob, thanks so much for uh, taking the time today. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, listen, I'm looking forward to uh, diving into all things protein supplementation and training here today. But before we do that, can you tell listeners a little bit more about yourself and uh, your journey uh, at McMaster? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, glossing over uh, with broad strokes here. I mean, I was uh, I was really interested in sports growing up, played a lot of competitive sports, uh, hockey, uh, baseball, basketball, soccer, and rugby. Uh, continued in high school sports too, all those plus uh, volleyball, ended up playing rugby in university. Uh, so sports have always been a huge part of my life. Uh, did a kinesiology degree, and during that undergraduate degree, I got very into uh, strength and conditioning and sports report, sports uh, performance. So uh, that took me, I did some work in the NCAA at the University of Louisville, uh, worked with Hockey Canada, <clears throat> a couple of the McMaster teams, uh, as well as uh, an AHL team, the Hamilton Bulldogs at the time. Um, so my, my plan was always to become a sports scientist of sorts, but I uh, rolled into graduate school and absolutely loved it. <clears throat> I am finishing my PhD now with Stu Phillips and uh, loved it. So I, I think uh, I've kind of given up the sports science dream for now, but that's what that's the area of research uh, that I'm interested in anyway. And it all kind of comes back to my background uh, and passion for sports. Yeah, it's impressive stuff and you know impressive group over there at McMaster and and looking forward to diving into your terrific research here around you know resistance exercise training in combination with protein supplementation. Obviously, definitely a common practice, especially in athletes. We see this also in recreational exercisers. Yet, as you point out in your in your work, you know, large meta-analyses previously in this area have yielded some conflicting results. So again, leading us into your work, can you tell us a little bit more about the rationale for your study and, and what question you guys were trying to answer? Yeah, I, well, I mean, for this one in particular, it was pretty simple. It was just to answer the question of whether protein supplementation works or not. Uh, specifically, uh, during periods of weight training, if you supplement with protein, does it increase or augment your increase in muscle size and muscle strength? Uh, and that's what we were after. Terrific. And can you, you know, in a meta-analysis, you're obviously starting out with a large number of studies. You guys whittled it down to 49 studies that you included. <laughs> so for any listeners who aren't as familiar, can you talk about you know, what that process is like and how you ultimately came to the 49 studies you included in this paper? Yeah, so a meta-analysis is really a, it's a combination of a bunch of individual uh, studies called randomized control trials. Uh, we had 49 that we put in, like you mentioned, at the end, but to get to that number, we started with over 3,000. So what we do there is we do <clears throat> big database searches. So any paper or any book uh, published uh, on the uh, the topic of protein supplementation uh, during resistance training. We searched for and we found there was 3,000. Some of them were duplicates. Uh, some of them didn't meet our inclusion criteria, which I can talk about. Uh, but we were, we were able to sift down to about 49 uh, that were in healthy people. Uh, they were long enough uh, to meet our inclusion criteria, which is six weeks. We didn't want to we didn't see we didn't see a point of including studies that were maybe you know a week or two long, for example. Um, yeah, and that, and that forty nine studies included almost two thousand people. So we tried to do a very uh, comprehensive assessment uh, as we could. But yeah, I started with over three thousand. Yeah, that's uh, pretty impressive. And you know, after all that analysis, I'm sure everyone's uh, 
you know, waiting with bated breath here to see what the outcomes were. I'm sure a lot of them have already read the paper, but, uh, you know, what did you guys find with respect to protein supplementation and strength? Yeah, well, it was, it was interesting, uh, cause like you said, there'd been so many conflicting opinions, uh, and some conflicting meta-analyses themselves, tons of conflicting individual studies. Uh, so I, d- I didn't really know what to expect, but, uh, Uh, To put it out there, we found that protein supplementation during periods of weight training augments changes in muscle mass and muscle strength. Um, So it was uh, was a green light to the protein supplementers anyway. Uh, Yeah, that's what we found. And in terms of that benefit, you know, what kind of uh, degree of benefit are we looking at here? And was there any, you know, differences when we're looking at more of an athletic population versus recreational? Uh, So that's a great question. in general, the benefits were very small, and that's an important message that we've tried to get out as well. Uh, we, the benefit you get from weightlifting uh, is probably about ninety percent of the benefit or of the change uh, in muscle size and muscle strength. The benefit you get from protein supplementation on top of that is is peanuts <clears throat> in comparison. In fact, it's about ten percent. Um, to give you that in a number from the meta analyses, so. People, the studies lasted for an average of 13 weeks. So lifting weights for 13 weeks with or without protein supplementation augmented changes in fat-free mass, let's say, by about one kilo. So you put on one kilogram of muscle in 13 weeks. And uh, the group that got protein supplementation on average got an extra 0.3 kilos. Uh, And that had a confidence interval with it. So some people will only put on maybe 0.2 uh, pounds to switch it up for, if that's more familiar, to about maybe one pound uh, of um, benefit um, from protein supplementation. So I, I suppose my point is is that protein supplementation was effective. It was statistically effective, but, I mean, it's, uh, it's largely uh, peanuts in comparison to the actual resistance training. Yeah, I suppose to the naked eye, it's tougher to to be able to tell versus obviously being statistically significant. And and Rob, did you guys find in terms of a dose then, in terms of a daily protein dose that was, um, you know, sufficient then to meet these requirements? And and above that, there was you know potentially no response. Yeah, one of the uh, one of the things that we wanted to look at because there have been other meta analyses, you know, that look at you know just older people, uh, just very resistance trained people or maybe uh, people who are in the hospital. So different populations, a bunch of different things. But so we ran what are called meta regressions and meta regressions allow you to look at the effect of covariates or in plain English, a a meta regression allows you to look at the effect of things like protein dose or protein source, you know, if it's soy versus whey, um, et cetera, et cetera. So we look, we did a bunch of those and, what I thought, you know, maybe protein supplementation would be more effective uh, if the participants were given, you know, maybe 40 grams instead of 5 grams. Or maybe they were. it would be more effective if they were given whole foods like eggs or something versus uh, – or eggs or yogurts versus uh, whey or soy protein. And so we looked at a bunch of those things. And uh, to our surprise, um, none of those things really mattered. And that, that probably is uh, – a consequence of the the low efficacy of protein supplementation period. So the effects you're trying to wring out by 
comparing whey versus soy, for example, are, are minimal. Um, having said that, we looked at, we did, I think what we're referring to is the, the biphasic regression that we did. So that we, for that, we looked at daily protein intake mm -hmm. because some studies had people who maybe were getting about 0.8 grams of protein per kilo per day. And maybe supplementation would be more effective in them versus people who were already getting, let's say, two grams of protein per kilo per day. Um, so we kind of threw the protein supplementation question out the window for that and just looked at can daily protein intake predict uh, the benefits of uh, or the changes in fat-free mass with training. And that was really neat. That number, so the number we came out with is that beyond protein intakes of 1.6 grams of protein per kilo per day, there's no extra benefit of protein supplementation. And that number has been incorporated into the, uh, uh, the International Olympic Committee, for example, uh, the International Sports uh, Nutrition Association, what's it called? I, I think it's called ISSN. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that number has been kicked around a lot. And that was, you know, that was honestly uh, a few of us sitting around a laptop thinking like, you know what, like it's so hard to compare all these studies. There are so many factors that might come in. Let's just look at daily protein intake. And uh, you know what, I think that that's a, that's a big takeaway is that how much protein you get during the day in total is, is uh, much more worth your time considering than whether or not you take a protein supplement before you go to sleep or something or uh, after your training. Yeah, it's an it's a fascinating point and such an important point, isn't it? That that athletes and active people need to be thinking about that that daily intake. Are they being consistent and achieving that day after day versus thinking that simply that protein supplement at the end of their training session, as you mentioned, that sort of ten percent is really going to be the make or break when really that daily intake is is really the uh, the biggest bucket, isn't it? That's a that's a great way of putting it. It is the biggest bucket. And Rob, one of the things that I think people might, um, there's probably some confusion as well around, you know, at greater than 1.6 grams per kilo per day, is that simply we're not building any more, you know, muscle mass? You know, what's what's happening to the rest of that protein? Because that's definitely something that gets a lot of confusion on the interwebs around whether it's absorbed or what it might be utilized for. Can you shed a bit of light on that? Yeah, that, that could be a thick question. Uh, but <laughs> in general, what you do... Uh, so if, let's say if you, if you just have protein in your diet for, uh, for ease of explanation, uh, you can take some of those amino acids and you can shunt them and make more glucose. Uh, that's possible. Uh, but if you're already having getting enough carbohydrates and fats and other energy sources, for example, a lot of that protein is going to be cleaved off and uh, you know the carbon skeleton can go all sorts of places, including it can be breathed out. Uh, the nitrogen you'll pee out because it's toxic. Um, so in, in general, your body's not using it for muscle growth. And I think that that's the whole, at least for the context that we're talking about it, um, that's why people would consume higher protein diets is to put on more muscle. And the point is, is that we're not using that for muscle. We're either using it for fuel if we can't get fuel from elsewhere or we're getting rid of it. And that's, I mean, that's a really powerful point as well. I mean, obviously myself dealing with basketball players and athletes who tend to be the, 
the harder ones to put, uh, you know, size on. And, and oftentimes protein is that macronutrient that's gotten all the focus in the last sort of decade or two. And, and everyone's protein focused post-exercise. And obviously what your research is highlighting is that once you've achieved that 1.6 grams per kilo per day, then, then really you've got to be making sure that you're achieving your total energy needs and carbohydrate needs, don't you, to be able to achieve that if you're looking to add hypertrophy and more, more lean mass. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I still, I might be biased, but I, I do think that protein is the most important of the macronutrients. There are essential fatty acids, omega-3 and omega-6s. Omega there are uh, plenty of essential amino acids, but uh, not there are no essential carbohydrates. Um, so I do think that uh, if I was, you know, if I was working with an athlete population or, or anyone in particular, weight loss, whatever it is, uh, my f- my my focus would be on protein. Um, and I should mention that uh, that 1.6 has a confidence interval with it. Um, confidence interval is, is exactly how it sounds. You know, it's 1.6, but uh, it could be a little less or it could be a little more, depending uh, on a, on a number of known and unknown variables. Um, and the upper confidence uh, interval is 2.2. So some uh, some groups have recommended 2.2 as the number because uh, mm-hmm. if if you get you're you're guaranteed to uh, uh, to get all the benefits from protein supplementation. So I, I suppose an asterisk on it, but you know, one point six for uh, for someone who's six five and maybe I don't know, like uh, like 200, 250, 300 pounds, it could be. Um, you know that's a lot of protein. Absolutely, I'm, yeah. I, mean, I was going to ask around that general heuristic you tend to hear is the you know the gram per pound, which as you mentioned becomes the two point two grams per kilogram, and and so we see that as sort of the upper end of of intake. And you know if that's not impacting an athlete's appetite and they're getting enough fuel on board, is you know are there potentially some some other benefits there, or, or you know is that going to be really depending on the individual? Yeah, I suppose that's the art of uh, of what you of what you do and what many sports scientists do. Um, yeah, so I think it's I think it's on the individual for that one. That's terrific. And you you know you talked about Rob around different needs, and you mentioned you know older populations, and that's definitely one when you know my conversations with Stu Phillips and I had Theo Spoglu on from from Leeds Beckett over uh, in the UK and talking yeah. about age related sarcopenia and. And this anabolic resistance that takes place as people get older. Can you talk a little bit about that and about how protein needs might change as, as we get older? Yeah. Yeah. The study we're talking about right now actually is probably, I mean, I don't want to pump my own tires here, but it's, it's the biggest analysis on uh, anabolic resistance uh, in healthy people, uh, older people. And, you can see there in one of the figures, it's it's a meta regression. It's called a bubble plot, but the point is is that older individuals are less responsive to a given protein dose. Uh, that's what anabolic resistance is. That's what Stu and Theo would have, would have told you. Um, so the hypothesis is, and what we're what we're saying is that uh, maybe we can overcome that resistance to protein if we just flood the system, if we just give more. Uh, and there's some really neat evidence coming out to suggest that that's correct. Um, so, you know, for the the per dose recommendation right now in athlete populations is 0.25 grams of protein per kilo uh, per meal. Uh, for older older individuals, it's actually going to shift up to about 0.4 grams of protein per kilo per meal. 
Um, and then, you know, to give you something a bit more concrete, that's about uh, 25 grams uh, for, for like a young, healthy man and about 35 grams uh, for an older individual. Uh, older uh, could mean anywhere 60 plus uh, uh, depends on your definition of older. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. We get into some semantics there for sure. But I appreciate that in terms of them requiring greater amounts. And I, you know, I work a lot in men's health. It's definitely something that, you know, your guys' work I've been preaching to, to clients and, you know, as, as men and women get, let's say into their seventies, things like appetite tends to come down. Um, yeah. You know, something Theo talked about, even in terms of, you know, things that we might not think about normally, but even dentition, you know, biting into a steak or something like that as you get older might not be as easy as it once was. And so getting to that 35 gram dose, you know, can almost be challenging in that aspect. And I know there's some work going on around various supplements. I don't know if you can comment around, you know, what might be coming out in the research or strategies around trying to achieve those intakes with older individuals. Uh, yeah, well, like I could mention, you know, that this is definitely an area of, uh, uh, of intense research um, because we lose muscle as we age and when we lose muscle that brings with it a, a ton of comorbidities uh, quality of life is a big one but there's also the big hitters like uh, cardiovascular disease and stroke um, that are all associated diabetes is, an, is a, perhaps a more obvious one uh, with glucose uptake um, but we need muscle uh, so Strategies to offset that include maybe trying to find ways to uh, not – protein is very satiating. So if, is there a way – like Theo would know all about this. Is there a way to – like maybe a liquid diet uh, could help them uh, get more. Maybe if I figure out that one amino acid is particularly anabolic, a uh, big one floating around right now is leucine. Maybe if I could pack a bunch of leucine into a, uh, a gummy, a shake, a bar or something, uh, maybe that – could uh, not suppress the appetite as much, but maybe give them the uh, anabolic benefit of amino acids. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I can comment and say that it's definitely a, an intense area of research. We were talking about uh, Tyler before the podcast started, too. And yeah. uh, our church with Vinay would know uh, more about that than most. So, uh, yeah, he, his research is all about or has been about uh, different protein sources, insects, now uh, whey protein, soy protein. BCAAs, leucine, etc. So definitely, definitely an area, an area of interest. Anyway, yeah, I mean that's it's fascinating around the aging question, and you you touched on obviously the different types of protein, and you know Tyler's great work, and I also had Dr. Cody Hahn on last season. He was talking all around the soy protein and a lot of the myths around soy protein that, that still sort of float around around testosterone and things like that. I don't know if you want to comment or share your thoughts on the different types of proteins or, or any suggestions to, to athletes or, or practitioners who are prescribing in terms of the types of proteins that people might be taking in? Yeah, well, you know, one of the most level-headed people I've ever talked to uh, about this with is Tyler. And, um, you know, there are, there are ethical, moral reasons why people prefer vegetable proteins. And you know, that, I, that I tip the hat. I, I, it's, there's no benefit to discourage that. Um, however, there is some research to say that animal-sourced proteins are a bit more anabolic. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I suppose that's all I have to say. I mean, the, the benefits you get, like if you look at the meta-analyses that, uh, that we're talking about here, the, the protein source didn't matter. 
So whey protein, soy protein equally as effective. Um, when I say animal source proteins may be a bit more anabolic, that's measuring uh, very sensitive and acute uh, turnover rates of proteins inside muscle. Uh, but whether or not that extrapolates in the long term doesn't look like it. And you know the benefit you get from the protein supplementation period, as we said in the beginning, is you know it's minimal. Uh, so I mean, you, in my opinion, you're splitting hairs. And if someone prefers soy protein, let them take soy protein. In my mind, uh, if someone prefers whey protein because they, they're convinced it's it's got more leucine and it's more anabolic, then uh, absolutely fine too. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that those are my thoughts on it. Yeah, it's tremendous. It, it comes down to that idea of compliance again, doesn't it? Like so many things of the the thing the person's willing to do and, and and is most consistent with and being able to achieve it seems to always come out as, as some of the best uh, strategies, right? So that's a, that's a great tip there. And, you know, Rob, if we circle back to, you know, this, your study in terms of, you'd mentioned previously, again, this idea of discrepancies with previous results from meta-analyses. Um, and of course, you know, yourselves running the, the largest, which is, uh, you know, impressive in terms of the largest meta-analyses ever done. And, you know, what were some of the reasons for some of those discrepancies previously? And, and with this additional evidence, you know, are you able to then make more concrete uh, statements now with, with all this added information? Um, the main differences between our meta-analysis and the, and the other ones, um, definitely bigger, uh, at least double in size compared to the second biggest. Um, we included a bunch of other analyses, the meta-regressions that I mentioned, uh, the daily protein intake biphasic uh, regression that I mentioned. Uh, but the reason why we found protein supplementation was effective and many others didn't uh, was the inclusion criteria. So some people included only older people uh, who may be less responsive to protein like we were talking about. Um, other meta-analyses, you know, compared whey versus soy. Uh, other meta-analyses uh, were, were frankly not very comprehensive. So there was quite a few studies missed. Um, some studies were and hospitalized or unhealthy people. Um, I saw another meta-analysis. I didn't cite it, but it was in. It, it included both human and uh, animal research, uh, which didn't make a ton of sense to me. Uh, those are the. I mean, the overarching theme is that very different inclusion criteria. So we were only interested, uh, or in this meta-analysis, were healthy people of all ages. Um, it needed to be longer durations, so at least six weeks. That was our cutoff. If the study was less than six weeks, we didn't look at it. Um, no animal work, uh, and it, it had to include both a protein-supplemented group and a non-supplemented group, but they had to be doing the same training protocol. And that, you know, you, you'd think that that's an obvious thing to consider, but uh, not, all, not all studies or meta-analyses uh, uh, considered that. So that's the that's the main difference, anyway. Terrific, and I mean, obviously, you know, massive amount of work has gone into this. It's uh, you know important findings and, and findings that are definitely can really transfer to practice so well. And uh, you know, for yourself, Rob, in terms of you know the the evolution of this type of research, you know, what are some of the next questions that you're trying to answer on the protein front that are um, you know whether those are being applied to sport or in other areas? Yeah, well, well, so far, I think we've been relatively uh, macroscopic in our scope here. I mean, it's, we're talking about protein, 
which has can be composed of a number of different amino acids, and it can be co-ingested and ingested with a number of other micronutrients. So I really think that the the frontiers of nutrition research, anyway, is going to be pushing towards co-ingesting with uh, carbohydrates is old. That that's uh, largely ineffective for protein synthesis, anyway. But um, you know, vitamin D, calcium, creatine, um, uh, maybe preferentially infusing other amino acids like uh, like leucine, for example, is a big one. I think that's the, that's the next step. And uh, a persistent debate that I'm sure that you've fielded plenty plenty more than most is whole food versus supplements. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, there's going to be some some pretty neat research coming out. Uh, in those, as well as other, like I can tell you at Mac, we're, we're looking at uh, different protein sources all the time, collagen, potato, whey, uh, insect protein. I think Tyler's getting into now. That's really neat because uh, a lot of other popular, we're in a developed, both of us right now are in developed countries uh, where we don't have too much problem about finding protein, but um, other other individuals may rely on wheat sources of protein or insect sources of protein. So um, there's a global perspective on this too. Yeah, the crickets are going to be uh, the next uh, yeah. the next yeah. whey protein, right? Maybe. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's interesting, isn't it, in terms of the the different uh, uh, <clears throat> types and and of course, you know, answering all these questions and you know, when you look at some of these, you know, we still hear a lot of the myths that get persist around things like protein and even in the medical field and the one that tends to persist the most is always around protein intake and kidney health and Mm. and i'm sure you've flogged this (laughs) beaten this dead horse a little bit already but um you know for our listeners can you talk a little bit about you know protein intake and kidney health and any potential concerns that uh, anyone might have yeah, so that's. I was just talking to my friend who's uh, he's neck deep in med school right now, and he was just taught that protein, high protein diets, uh, cause kidney damage. And it's true that uh, our kidneys are responsible for filtering our amino acids and ultimately uh, excreting the the amine backbone, the, the nitrogen. And so that's true. We need our our kidneys to filter protein. Um, but there's this circular logic that's existed that. When someone has kidney failure and you give them protein, their kidney failure, and in fact, a number of outcomes, uh, get much worse. So it's circular because, okay, I had kidney damage, I gave high-protein diets, and it got worse. So high-protein diets caused kidney failure. And that is, yeah, that's circular logic. Um, So we've fought that quite a bit. Um, There is... There is no evidence, legitimately no evidence, uh, that high-protein diets uh, inhibit or damage kidneys. Uh, and there's a number of outcomes you can look at. Glomerular filtration rate is probably the most uh, clinical one. We just published a meta-analysis last year. The first author is Michaela DeVries. She's a prof at Waterloo in Ontario, and uh, she knows a ton about it. She was the first author on that paper, but uh, summarizing... It was at least ten studies. Um, yeah, there's there's no there's no negative effect of high protein diets on kidney function as assessed by uh, GFR glomerular filtration rate. Yeah, it's you know refreshing to hear, and it's amazing. You know, obviously, if 
Prof. Stuve has uh, mentioned that on the podcast, and Dr. Jose Antonio, and then Theo as well, and now yourself. And I think it's important for practitioners and docs listening in to continue to hear that because that myth still really persists, and that idea of it stressing the kidneys is you know another phrase that's often used, and it's uh, obviously not evidence based. So, so thanks for continuing to shed some light on that. And uh, and you know, I mean, it's just it's. It's getting in the textbooks now, uh, and it'll probably get filtered down to actual practitioners in a couple of years. That's just the way she goes. But yeah, there's there's no reason to hesitate from high protein diets uh, from a kidney perspective, anyways. Terrific. And from a practical sense here, Rob, if you were you know if you're working with an athlete or an active person, you know what kind of advice would you then give them in terms of protein intake if you were trying to keep it um, you know somewhat succinct for them to be able to achieve. Yeah, so there'd be two considerations. One, are they trying to gain weight or one, are they trying to lose weight? Um, Broad sweeping, protein, in my opinion, is the macronutrient that I would consider uh, being particular about more than fats and carbohydrates. So during periods of weight loss, I think that we would benefit from even higher protein intakes. And there's a a nice systematic review by Eric Helms on that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Stu's uh, led a paper on that where uh, up to over 2, 2.2 grams of protein per kilo, um, people were actually able to hold on their muscle during during periods of weight loss. So if I was working with an athlete who was trying to cut weight, uh, that'd be a pretty important consideration. I don't want them to lose part of their muscle as that as part of the weight loss process. So high protein diet is key for them. If someone's trying to gain weight, um, they probably don't need as much protein. That's perhaps more depends on, uh, what, what they're looking for, but the total calories matter and, uh, fats are much more calorie dense so that I would hesitate from, uh, excessive, excessive protein intakes, um, and shift them more towards maybe a higher fat, uh, diet as well. Terrific. And on the you know general population side of things, when you look at you know, unfortunately, two thirds of the population now are overweight or obese. We have a growing percentage of the population pre-diabetic, diabetic, you know, hypertensive, as you mentioned, things like heart disease on the rise, cardiovascular disease, obviously the number one killer. You know, what types of general recommendations for you know a coach or practitioner listening in who's working, a trainer who's working with this population, or somebody who's listening in on that front that uh, could be a nice you know general heuristic or, or tip for them? Yeah, from a health perspective, there's there's massive epidemiology studies um, and some neat ones now that are in all sorts of uh, different countries from developed to developing to uh, third world. And uh, higher carbohydrate diets uh, are predispose you to all sorts of different risk factors. So from a health perspective, uh, if I were to decrease anything, it would be carbohydrates. And if I were to increase anything, it'd be protein. That'd be a very succinct uh, recommendation. Now, for athletes, um, they they do use more uh, of glycogen, their, their glycogen stores, which come from carbohydrates uh, in most. Um, and they, they need to replenish what they use uh, if they're doing success, successive training bouts or tournaments or whatever. Uh, it's a long-winded way to say that I think carbohydrates – uh, the recommendation for carbohydrates is different in athlete populations because they're using their fuel so often uh, that I would say, uh, you know, a simple um, 
it could be like a 35 carbo or a 40, 30, 30, or something like that. 40% carbohydrate, 30% fat, 30% protein would work, would work very well for them. Uh, but from a general health, uh, I would say drop the carbohydrate to maybe uh, 20, 40, 40, for example. Yeah, that's definitely one that um, I had a chance to hear uh, Andy Jones give a talk around his work with uh, Eliad Kipchoge and the breaking two and how he had uh, a colleague of his who was an elite recreational runner, you know, marathoner. And when they were doing these tests, you know, he got up to 16, 17 kilometers an hour and, and you know, tapped out and couldn't keep going on the on the exercise test. And of course, they bring in the elites and that's the that's the speed they start they start the testing at, you know, it's just, which is, to- which is freaky. Yeah. Which is freaky. I mean, it's like a totally different, you know, person, uh, human really. Um, and so just as you mentioned there in athletes, obviously that carbohydrate need being so much different than even recreational athletes. And again, even more so than our sedentary population. So, you know, great point there. And I think Rob, people are probably wondering by now, after all this protein talk, besides getting a little bit hungry is, you know, what's, what's your protein intake? Like, what do you aim for per day and, and how do you break that down between food and supplements? Yeah, well, I, uh, I still play a ton of sports and I still lift weights three times a week. So after both sports and, uh, training sessions, I take a, I, I have a protein bar, protein shake. I'm, I'm quite particular about my protein intake. I, I've actually just this week I stopped tracking it, but I've used my fitness pal almost religiously, uh, and I'm up where about forty, about forty percent of my daily uh, caloric intake comes from protein, um, and I try to distribute it relatively evenly throughout the day, um, and I try to practice what I preach. I try to drop my carbohydrates if I drop anything, um, but there's carbohydrates and everything. So it's, it's easier said than done, but, uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I do anyway. And would you be up more towards the, would you at the 1.6 or perhaps more, up to, more towards the two or 2.2 grams per yeah. kilo? Then? Yeah. I'm about two, almost on the dot. I'm, I'm at two. Um, and that's, it's the same rationale that I think anyone who would, take it relatively serious would have is, and it's that I might as well overshoot than undershoot. So, um, and, and honestly, I, I quite enjoy my protein, my eggs, my <laughs> nice, whatever. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, I totally agree. I mean, in terms of being that, uh, quote unquote, most important macronutrient and really prioritizing that. And as a lot of practitioners would say, kind of setting that protein intake. So it just becomes second nature and you're always getting that right dose is so crucial. And, um, you know, again, Rob, on this, you know, protein front, obviously all your tremendous work, what's the next step for you in terms of your evolution as a, as a researcher and what are you up to next? Yeah, well, I, I think my, my most, um, the thing I'm most passionate about is understanding, uh, the regulation of muscle mass. Uh, and that was, that came from an, an athlete background and then working in athletics. Um, but now I'm kind of shifting a bit more clinical. And uh, I'm going to be doing some more, it's called bioinformatics, but it's, it's big population and genome data trying to understand what, like what factors regulate the size of muscle. Uh, and, you know, if someone has more hormones, more of testosterone, more of this, more of that, do they have more muscle? Um, if someone has this uh, SNP or this sequence of their genome versus or versus another allele like do they have a higher propensity to increase muscle muscle size with exercise so those are the questions that i'm 
uh, I'm most most interested now. So I'm I'm actually kind of shifting away from nutrition, but I'm staying within the the house of muscle, and I'm trying to understand why why we why some people can gain more muscle or have more muscle than others, and on the flip side of that, why do we lose muscle as we age? Why do we lose muscle when we stop using it? What is it about um, yeah, what is it about those things that cause us to become anabolically resistant, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm shifting a bit more clinical in my interests, but my background at least is, is very applied sports science. That's tremendous. I mean, definitely on the health front, it's obviously so crucial and important as you've highlighted in this episode. And I think even on the training front, a lot of coaches, practitioners, athletes listening in are always wondering, you know, there's like those individuals who can sort of look at a barbell and, and gain muscle mass, whereas others really need to to put the training volume in and the and pack the food down to achieve it. So it'd be fascinating to see what you uncover in some of that uh, research coming up. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And of course, Big question here, Rob. You're finishing up your PhD. What What's the celebration at the end here? What are you going to reward yourself with after uh, all those hard years at work? Uh, uh, you know what? I, I just got into scuba diving, um, It's and I'm obsessed with it. So I think I'm going to go to uh, – I think I'm going to Belize, and I'm going to go scuba diving. Yeah, for just a week of me and uh, my girlfriend will probably just do a bunch of scuba. Oh, fantastic. The Blue Hole Belize, man. Have a great time. That's it, yeah. I appreciate you carving out some time, man. This is fantastic. You know, where can people stay connected with you and keep up with all this phenomenal research you're doing? I think I'm pretty easy to to find. I mean, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on uh, Facebook. You can add me on Facebook. Research-wise, you can find me on PubMed. My middle name is William, so it's Morton RW, Google Scholar. Um, I'm not as active on social media as some of the other guys that you mentioned, but, uh, that's just, that's just my style. Um, but too busy getting the work done. Uh, no, (laughs) it's just, uh, I tend to be a bit more reserved, uh, with social media, but you can find me on there. So, uh, please feel free to give me a follow. Amazing. Well, listen, it was a real treat to have you on. I appreciate you, uh, coming on and sharing your insights and, uh, hopefully look forward to twisting your arm in the future and getting you back on. I appreciate the opportunity. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Bose Performance Podcast. If you enjoy the content, please consider subscribing on iTunes, YouTube, or your favorite podcasting platform. Show your support, and it's also a tremendous help to the show and helps us to continue to attract high-quality guests. If you haven't heard, my new book, Peak, the new science of athletic performance that is revolutionizing sports, is out. And I'm pleased to announce we actually hit the Amazon bestseller list in Canada and in the U.S. in sports medicine, physical medicine and rehab, and holistic medicine categories. So you can find out more info on that and the expert insights at athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org. And of course, you can pick up a copy on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Chapters Indigo, Waterstones, or your local booksellers. Awesome. If you have any questions or want to leave a comment on today's episode, you can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. And thanks again, folks, for listening, and we'll see you all next week with more expert insights. The Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. 
You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's performance podcasts.